I'd like to start by congratulating everybody for coming, despite the warning that we we're going to be talking about fasting today. So well done. A little pat on the back for that. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, we are going to talk about fasting, and we had a little introduction last week from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. But looking out, I expect that a lot of us have all got a different idea of what that word means, a different experience of, of maybe trying fasting from time to time. I expect there'll be people that have spent a lot of time fasting, and um, and we've all got different ideas, I would think. So can we start by discussing and unpacking exactly what that is and maybe coming to talking about the same thing? Because we've got to, we've got to come to understand what specifically Christian fasting is. Nearly every religion in the world practices fasting in some way. Muslims don't eat during daylight hours during Ramadan. Um, Jews fast on Yom Kippur. Buddhists often fast from noon onwards during a day and during retreats and meditation and that sort of thing. And outside of religions, people fast primarily or just simply for health. Um, I don't know if you've had a workmate or a colleague or a friend do a detox. I mean, generally they'll tell you, but... They, um, you know, you, you take away food and you just drink lemon juice, or I don't know, that's one I've heard of. But um, there's also a popular diet, the five-two diet at the moment, which is you eat it five days um, uh, normal food, and then you severely restrict your calories on the other two days. So fasting isn't just a religious thing; it's something people do for health. And then there are more extreme types of fasting, like the hunger strike that we occasionally see um, from refugees or um, prisoners and that sort of thing. And a hunger strike, that's restricting food as well. So where does that fit into the fasting fasting idea? There are a whole number of reasons um, that people fast in the Bible. And I just think we could start by taking a look at all of those and hopefully finding something that is um, similar throughout all of those. So the Israelites fasted on the Day of Atonement, and that's where Jews fast for Yom Kippur came from. And Leviticus 16.29 says, Let this be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. So Israel was told to fast for, for sin and for the repentance of sin on the Day of Atonement. David fasted in order to humble himself and to intercede for his friends and enemies. In Psalm 35.13 it says, Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. In Esther 8 and in Ezra 8, the nation of Israel all fasted together at times of national emergency. In Esther, Mordecai's um, or Haman's plan to, to eradicate the Jews called them all to fasting so that Esther could go and approach the king even though she hadn't been invited. And in Ezra 8, the whole nation of Israel was returning from exile with all of their treasures and everything from the temple, and they fasted for protection as they traveled back. In the New Testament, Peter is fasting and praying in Acts 10 on the roof of Simon the Tanner when he receives the vision that um, of all the animals in the world and the giant sail, that the word of God can go to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 6.5, Paul says he fasted often. Ezra and David fasted because of grief. And Jesus fasted 40 days after being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. So what do all these things have in common? What are all of these things? How can we draw these to, together? I think what the, all of these have in common is that people took the focus off themselves 
and put their focus onto God through denying themselves food. So when we talk about fasting, if we could all, today, this is the definition I'd like us to have together. It is not consuming food for spiritual purposes. See, what makes Christian fasting Christian fasting is that the direction of our heart and where we're setting our mind toward as we do it. And this definition is deliberate. Not consuming food for spiritual purposes is deliberate because we're such brilliant consumers. We're such just we consume all the time. We consume the latest fashions, even when our clothes haven't worn out. We consume media, movies, social media. You know, this is the age where we have more information. We're often told we've got all, more information than we ever had before. And, and all of our consumption is driven by an I statement. It's I want, I feel, or I know. And, and as Bruce has sort of brought up existentialism over the last couple of weeks, one of the big religion of our day is self-actualization, which is where we're told to succeed. It's You need to go where I want to go. What I want to do is to succeed. And we're encouraged when we indulge every appetite that we might have. Any, any different thing gets indulged, that we choose to indulge is, is celebrated. It's like, yeah, good, good for you sort of thing. And so we're such good consumers that not consuming is actually gets a little bit hard. That's when things get hard. And, and I just want to, when we fast food, we, we do something that's hard. And I just want to touch on this physical aspect of why it's hard. And I want to talk a little bit about the spiritual aspect of why it's hard. Uh, physically, like we have trained our bodies to expect food at certain times, you know, who, um, whose body will give them a nice reminder at about 11 o'clock if they haven't had a coffee during the day yet. Maybe the same people will get a little reminder when their sugar tank hasn't been filled up either. And I think this points to a big lie that we've been sold by the media and society today. I think that we're trained to think that we're far more delicate than we are. I've worked in small offices where it's difficult to get away with regular fasting without somebody noticing and asking you why you're not eating. And I had a conversation with a lady once, and I, she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, I, I'm not eating until dinner time. I just do that to be able to focus on God for the day. And, and she, was, she was aghast that I would do something as dangerous, she called it dangerous, as to not eat until dinner time. And we can all share a laugh at that lady. She was really highly strung, that's true. But I wonder, I wonder if many of us are, are sort of having a few thoughts of, well, about even now why, why we're not going to be able to fast or why we can't fast. There are good reasons not to fast. If you've had um, trouble in the past with eating disorders and those sort of things, it's not good for you guys to, for us to fast food. Some people have got legitimate medical reasons not to fast. And when people are pregnant or expecting, that's not a good time to fast either. But for the most part, we are far, more, far tougher and far more resilient than I think that we have sort of come to train to understand ourselves. And I've said this before that I've, I've fasted until dinner time for around about five or six years or something. I can't remember. Uh, one day a week. When, I can't remember when uh, I started that. And, and one of the things I told myself when I was growing up was that I was, too, I was an athlete. I was, it was too important for me to eat because I was such a great sports hero. And, um, and so 
I've come to learn, though. I've come to understand that I cannot eat, and then I can go for a 45-minute run or an hour run, and I'm actually fine. You know, it's, it's a little bit harder work. And I do admit that I am a business analyst with my um, soft, sensitive keyboard hands. And so people that have a physical job um, would have a bigger, um, it would cost them more and it would be harder. But I have got some friends that have done this for a number of years as well as builders and stuff like that. Uh, I did two three-day fasts last year. I mentioned one of them briefly last week. And I was perfectly able to go about my job. I was perfectly able to be social. I was happy. You know, I didn't collapse on the ground as, as perhaps that was one of my fears. But a few practical things on the physical side. On the second and third day, I did have to stand up a little bit more slowly because you get those little sparkles. And, um, yeah, another piece of practical advice is that you get, uh, you're definitely colder when you're fasting because you don't have the food processing to warm your body up. And the maybe the most important piece of practical physical advice is that your breath gets quite fragrant uh, when you're fasting. So it's good to have a little eclipse mints or some gum or a toothbrush or something so that you know when you're trying to talk to people, they, they won't fall over maybe. <laughs> but as well as the physical side of fasting, there's also the spiritual side. And this is something that I've come to notice far more. You know, one of the reasons that we consume food is that it cheers us up. It makes us feel happy. And it allows us to avoid feeling feelings that we otherwise would have to deal with. When we're irritable, we generally have something to eat. When we're lonely, we often have something to eat. When we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're tired, we have something to eat. And when we do this, we dampen down our emotions with food. And we're effectively self-medicating and comforting ourselves. And when we use food this way, eating takes the place of the, of the Comforter with a capital C, the Holy Spirit. So Luke, if you could just throw out the first verse. In John fourteen fifteen to 18, it says this. If you love me, you will keep and obey my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another Comforter to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. I will not leave you as orphans, comfortless, bereaved, and helpless. So food takes the place of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And if we're always comforting ourselves, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to be comforted by the Holy Spirit and all the joy in what we learn about ourselves through that. When we take away the crutch of food, we have pockets of pain and, po- and things that of sin come to the surface that we otherwise wouldn't. And I don't know when the last time was that you peeled a really good apple. Like you look at an apple and you're like, that's perfect. When you go to peel the apple, you do find that, oh, there's three or four little bruises underneath. And I think that's one thing that fasting does for us. It takes away our extra layer and it allows us to see the things in ourselves that we need to change. And it's dealing with these things and bringing these things to God that fasting is for. And fasting is definitely not something you can learn in theory. Um, you could learn all about it. You could see how the Christian heroes of the past have fasted. You could um, learn exactly how your body's going to react. You could, yeah, you could do all of those sorts of things. But when it comes to actual knowledge of fasting, that doesn't really count for much. What, what you learn, you learn fasting by doing. And I think that this points out two of the main dangers of this consumeristic age that we live in. 
as well as consuming a lot in areas of our lives that we've talked about fashion and all that sort of stuff. I think we're often consumers as well in areas of faith. We consume Christian music. We consume Christian podcasts. We read books. We know a whole bunch. And I think that this leads to two dangerous things. The first one that is, is that our Christian faith can stay in the realm of theory or of personal heartwarming. You know, we feel good about ourselves, but we don't go any further. And secondly, our consuming means that we go to something else. We go to someone else rather than going to the source. I just want to unpack these two things a little bit. Firstly, faith staying is just a theory or is personal heartwarming. If you'd like to turn to, scroll to, or search for the book of Jonah, and Luke, if you can put that verse up, please. The book of Jonah details one of the famous fasts in the, in the Bible, which was the fast by the people of Nineveh. We all know Jonah is the guy that got swallowed by the whale. But as I was preparing for this week, I came across a couple of thoughts that I'd never considered before. In Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. It's a pretty direct instruction, right? It's not a whole lot of ambiguity there. Go to the great city, preach against it. We all know that Jonah didn't do that. We all know that Jonah ran away, and it's in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah gets told to do one thing, and then he does four things. He found a ship, paid a fare, uh, he went to Joppa, and then he went aboard the ship. How often do we realize that we need to do something simple but hard, and instead we sort of cover over by doing four good things? Last year, I really wanted to learn more about prayer and get more of the discipline of prayer in my life. So I had a look at what the Bible said, and I read a couple of good books. And I got started. One of the books had like a great thing. I was like, yep, that really suits me. That fits me. That's what I want to have in my life. And I started off, and I started off well for a few days. And then the week got busy, and then the next week sort of the discipline slipped. And I thought about it at the end of this two weeks. I was like, oh, man, I really wanted to do that. And so I resolved to read the book again. I was like, I should just quickly read that. I thought they had put it perfectly. I thought this was a profound thing that I should go after. So I started on reading this book again. I started like three more days of of spending that little parcel of time reading. And on the third day, I finally realized, I was like, this is ridiculous. Just spend the time that I would be reading in prayer. Actually pray. That's how I want to learn to pray. I had to dive into praying to learn how to pray. Learning about praying wasn't going to get me any further. And in his book on fasting called Hunger for God, John Piper says this, We easily deceive ourselves that we love God unless our love is frequently put to the test. And we must show our preferences, not merely with words, but with sacrifice. I'll just read that through again because I think that is, that is so good. We easily deceive ourselves that we love God unless our love is frequently put to the test. And we must show our preferences not merely with words, 
but with sacrifice. So here's what I want to say about this. Fasting is an antidote to the consumeristic age that we live in. It's a, it takes us out of the theory only, and it's a real sacrifice, a physical thing that we do to bring ourselves closer to God. Carrying on with the story of Jonah and paraphrasing the rest of chapter 1 and 2. He gets on the ship. God bombards the ship with a storm. They find out that Jonah's the cause of the storm. Jonah says, throw me overboard. They try and row to safety. The storm must have been so violent because they actually then say, all right, we'll throw him over and we might be able to save ourselves by giving up this guy. They're so desperate that they're willing to sacrifice a man's life to save themselves. And at the end of chapter one, Jonah is swallowed by the whale. He's in the whale for three days and nights and chapter two is his prayer from inside the whale. And then he's vomited out on dry land. And can we all read from chapter 3? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So first of all, this is amazing, right? Like, I hope we haven't been Christians so long that we're not amazed by this. One man walks into a giant city, proclaims one message, and all of the city, all of the, from the lowest to the highest up to the king and even the animals, repent, put on sackcloth, and pray to a God they don't believe in. Like, are we, let's not, like, forget to be amazed by that. That is amazing. And at the end of chapter four, this is a hundred, more than 120,000 people, it says. And I want to make an observation about this and then perhaps suggest a reason why. So we're deep into the story of Jonah. It's only a short book. The first chapters detail the trouble God goes to to get Jonah, one man, to do something that he's already been asked. Jonah goes to Nineveh, proclaims the message, and then everybody fasts. King, animals, everyone. And God goes to so much trouble, the storm, the whale, everything, to get one man who already believes in him. This is Jonah. He's a prophet. If you look at 2 Kings 14, he's already a prophet. And God gives us to all this trouble to get one man to do what he's asked. And then 120,000 people like that, God, the move of God comes. What does this say to us, the church? What does that say to us, the people who already believe in Jesus? 
I think that it says that if we would get before God, if we would become the people that he would wish us to become, if we would get before his face, then our cities would be different. I think our families would be different. Our sports team would be different. The places that we go would be different. If we would get before God, I think that the big challenges and the big problems that we have in our life would become something that we would see God moving in and we would see him come into. Do we get anyone agree to that? Can we get like, oh man. So how do we get before God? Well, fasting, as we're talking about, is one of God's clearly appointed ways. In Daniel 10, Daniel has a disturbing vision that he doesn't understand. And he fasts for 21 days. Not this time of all food, but it says that he ate no choice food, no meat or wine. And at the end of this time, he's visited by an angel who says this to him in, in Daniel ten twelve. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. When you humble yourself before God, God hears you. And Daniel humbled himself through fasting. Before we go on, I don't have time to get into it today. But I in no way mean to say that if we fast, we can, we can put God in a corner and we can say, oh, yeah, you've got to do that for me. I recently read um, this excellent book by Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline. And he says in that book, on fasting, he writes, it is sobering to remember that the first words that Jesus had to speak about fasting were about motive. The motive in fasting has got to be to get before God, not to get things from God. He writes later, let our intention be this and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. That is the only way we will be saved from loving the blessing more than the blesser. I'll read that one again as well. Let our intention be this and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. That is the only way we will be saved from loving the blessing more than the blesser. Now to the reason why. Why was this message so effective? Why was this message that Jonah shared, this one man walking throughout the city sharing the message so effective? I've got an idea. I'd like to put a theory to you. Having survived a terrible storm so bad that the people that were driving his ship were willing to throw him overboard as a last hope to be saved themselves. And then to have spent three days and three nights inside a whale. The fierceness and the power and the reality of God was 100%. That wasn't an idea for Jonah. The idea that there was judgment, the idea that God had wrath and was angry... That was, that was an absolute total reality to Jonah. He had experienced it. He'd just been through this horrible ordeal. And it must have been a, th- a move of God for the people to repent as they did. But when it says, the me- when it says in that verse 40 day- that Jonah proclaimed the message 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, I don't, think he pro- I don't think he put those words to song. I don't think it was just a little happy tune. I think that would have been a, just a desperate cry, a desperate plea. And I don't, I don't know if a more desperate message could be given after having been through that experience. And this addresses the second point about going to things rather than going to the source. We fast to get before God. 
And when we humble ourselves, we really give him a chance to work in our lives. And when, he, when we do that, it changes things. We no longer respond to things the way that we respond to the books that we read or even the sermons that we listen to. We, we might read something or hear something and think, oh, that was such a great idea. We might think, oh, that is such a persuasive argument. I'm gonna, I intend to think more about that later. Or we might think, oh, that's what a great speaker or what a terrible speaker maybe. But fasting helps us to get in touch with God. And that really gets us in touch with the action that needs to be taken. If we read something or hear something or get something from someone else, in a sense we can take it or leave it. It's their view. But if we get in touch with God and we hear from God, we can still take it or leave it. But we do so at our own risk. I'm not talking about fasting and then hearing a voice from the sky. I'm talking about fasting and then getting a genuine concern for the salvation of our brother, our sister, our neighbor, our co-worker. I'm talking about getting like the Ninevites did and, and turning from our wickedness and turning from our habits and our stuff in our life and really turning from them. And I'm talking about getting a burden to pray until we see change in a situation. To close, ultimately, ultimately, we give up food for a time to get closer to the one who gave up not only food for 40 days, but to get closer to the God who gave up his very life for us. We enter into discomfort for a time to get closer to the God who didn't consider the discomfort of crucifixion, the discomfort of suffering the wrath of sin, and the discomfort of being separated from his father too high so that he wouldn't have done it and then given us the eternal life. He didn't consider being separated from the father too high a price to pay so that we can have freedom, we can have eternal life, and we can be forgiven of our sin. So in the run-up to Easter, as we've talked about this morning, I'd like to invite you all to join us in a church-wide fast. Jesse's going to give a little bit more detail about that. But this coming Thursday and then um, the following week on the Wednesday and Thursday, we want to invite you to join with us and join together and fast. And we want to fast about something really specific. You know, Jeanette talked about the Hope Project. And we really want to get together to fast and to seek God so that we can have these moments where we can talk about and invite people to salvation. We've got this big Easter service coming up. We want to pray and we want to seek God for people that we can invite and bring along and have them hear the message of Jesus and really hear it and come to learn and give themselves to him and to, to receive that peace and receive that comfort that that video talked about. We want to seek God for the people in our lives whose eternal lives depend on us sharing the message of Jesus with them. Can we pray? Father God, I just thank you, Lord. Father, that as Easter comes near, Lord, that we remember again the sacrifice that you made, Lord. We remember what you went through so that we could be free and that we could have life, Lord. 
Father, I ask that you would, we would move on our hearts, Lord, that you would point our hearts toward those that we know, the people that we know that desperately need to hear that message, Lord. The people that don't yet know that message in their hearts, Lord. Just pray that you'd be with us as we come to fast, Lord, as we come to seek your face, Lord. And I know, Lord, that when we seek, when your people seek your face, they will find you, Lord. Father, I just commit this fast and this time coming up to you. And um, yeah, I just, just pray for that and, and I just thank you, Lord.